The following is a podcast from Ballin Entertainment. Hello, it's Craig Thompson, and this is the Stratford Slice. To most people, she's known as an internationally successful recording artist, but here in Stratford, she's known as a community activist. My guest today is Lorena McKennett. Welcome, Lorena, to the Stratford Slice. Thank you very much. Great pleasure to be here. I first encountered you way back when uh, at the St. Lawrence Market when you were starting out busking and getting your musical career. But your connection to Stratford actually started a few years before that. Uh, you started yes, with, yes. like a lot of people, you came to Stratford because of the Stratford Festival. Yes, it was at an inter- interesting juncture of my uh, the pursuit of, of my career, as it were. At the time, I had been living in Winnipeg, and in 1981, I auditioned for the Festival Theatre when I was visiting some friends in Toronto, and almost as a lark, went down to the equity office and auditioned, and was offered the opportunity to be uh, you know, one of the chorus people in HMS Pinafore. So that's how my uh, my introduction. In actual fact, I had passed through um, by train uh, with my dog when I was visiting some other friends up in Blythe, but we won't count that one. <laughs> but uh, yes, that was that was my um, my serious introduction to Stratford in '81, and I worked at the theater in different capacities for about four years. But it took me about those three or four years to feel like I was going to make this home. How did you decide when you were doing, you were ended up doing some music for uh, some of the performances, mm-hmm. the plays, the theater? How did you decide that you wanted to pursue storytelling through music and specifically music that's rooted in history? Well, I, it wasn't a conscious thing at the time. Uh, I had been, when I was in Winnipeg, I was part of a wonderful folk club that convened at the woodworking shop on Main Street on Sunday nights and comprised of many people from Scotland and Ireland and so on. And and I became smitten by the Celtic music. Uh, when I moved here, I was actually in the process of taking studying Irish hispi- history by um, correspondence. And I continue to immerse myself in the Celtic music, uh, even while I was working at the theatre. And in fact, there was someone in the company had had a little harp. And I, I borrowed it from a, on a few occasions and then acquired my own harp um, uh, in the early 80s as well. And uh, so when I was not invited back uh, to the theater after 1984, I thought, okay, am I going to play in lounges or I'm going to teach music or what am I going to do? I had always wanted to be a veterinarian and uh, I borrowed the $10,000 my parents had saved with great difficulty for me to go to vet school and I borrowed that money to make my first recording in 1985 and went into a wonderful studio that was in a barn just outside of Alora and made my first recording and recorded it and mixed it in a week. So it, it, I, 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 I like to say that I knew what I was doing or that I chose music, but I really feel when I look back that music chose me. Now, y- you grew up around music, but you grew up in an agricultural background. Was there music in your household? Did you learn to play piano or something? How did the harp jump out at you? 
Well, there wasn't much music uh, in our household except for when my grandmother would come over and play uh, the piano when she was babysitting and be putting us to 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 bed. Uh, my my father was a livestock dealer, my mother a nurse. But the community of Morden uh, is rich uh, still with a strong German Mennonite community. So there was a lot of music throughout the throughout the community. And um, in fact, my private music teacher, Olga Friesen, uh, she came from the, the, the Mennonite community. That was a piano teacher? She was my piano teacher, but when I started piano lessons at the age of five, she made it obligatory uh, for each of her students to belong to the children's choir that she had convened. And this wasn't just some rinky-dink <laughs> children's choir. It was a really, really excellent children's choir, and we would compete against the Mennonite children's choir in Winnipeg and, you know, do very well seems like a, a kind of a bit of a dichotomy. You grew up on a farm in a German culture, and then you went into a career that is more Celtic and uh, musical. It, how did the, how does how do you sort of deal with those two conflicting pathways? Well, I think once I got interested in the Celtic music through the folk club in Winnipeg, and I tapped into my own my own family history comes from Scotland, Ireland, and actually my mother on my mother's side, they were uh, Russian Mennonites. Um, so it was um, so music came at me a few different directions, but the Celtic music really I I was quite smitten by it. I'm sure I would have been regardless of my heritage. Uh, I listened to a few really seminal recordings in that time. One was a wonderful recording by uh, Harper from Brittany called Alain Stivelle, and it was called the Celtic Harp Renaissance. And I was just completely taken away with it. And so w at the first opportunity, I was able to get a harp and start developing a repertoire. Uh, I started zeroing in on that direction of things. It was very niche at the time, and back in the 1980s when radio was in its heyday, everybody was obsessed with the next pop group. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I guess you could say because you ha were a farm girl at heart, you grabbed the bull by the horns. <laughs> and uh, if nobody's going to accept my music, I'll do it myself. Was that the sort of the uh, offspring of your first self-financed album, doing, um, it, doing it yourself? Well, uh, for, sh for sure, I was blessed to encounter this book called How to Make and Sell Your Own Record by Diane Rapoport, and she was good friends with a publicist that I came to know in, in Toronto. And so I used it as my Bible to make my first recording and deal with all the manufacturing parts, but some of the legal parts and so on. And I, so I I, after I'm, I manufactured 30 copies and I gave about 15 away I decided okay what am I going to do with the remaining 15 and I decided well I'll go into Toronto and I'll busk at the St. Lawrence Market so there I sat off and on on Saturday mornings in amongst the cucumbers and the cabbages uh, from quite early in the morning till about midday and found that not only was it quite lucrative, relatively speaking, but it gave me the confirmation that there was some interest in the music that I was doing, even though it wasn't, you know, the top 10 or top 40. <coughs> but because you learned to do it yourself, you didn't really need the help of the the big record labels, did you? Uh, you had some relationship with them. Can you tell us about how... How that evolved. Yeah. Um, Yes, well, I, I produced that recording in 1985. It was called Elemental, and I busked. Uh, and then I produced a second recording, a field, well, almost like a field recording of Christmas and winter material um, in Ireland, and that was to drive the cool winter away in 87. And then 
interestingly, my, that publicist, Richard Flohill, was good friends with the A&R person from Polygram. And he was a huge Irish music lover, and he was very close with Dire Straits. And he had heard my, you know, couple of these recordings, and he managed to convince Polygram to offer me an artist development deal. For, and that that was for about $10,000 to go into a studio. We went into um, a studio in Hamilton, Daniel Lanois' studio, and recorded what ended up being five pieces. And... Um, after that, in the fall of 88, that, that tape went back to Montreal to the, uh, the Polygram offices and I took the train up to Montreal in January to meet with the key people to see whether they were going to sign me on or not. And I went into the office of uh, the, the, the key individual whose name escapes me at the moment and he said, you know, what you're doing is quite interesting, but to be honest, we don't know what to do with it and so we're going to have to pass. And that year, uh, 89, I was planning to release my third recording anyway. So I said, no problem. Uh, I would like to buy that tape back, however. And he looked at me and, and he said, oh, oh sure, yeah, okay. You, you, well, then go down the hall and see Maureen in the finance department. And, you know, work, good out, good, work out a deal and good luck to you. So I made arrangements with Maureen to buy that tape back for $10,000, but I didn't have $10,000. So I arranged to buy it back in installments. And finally, the fall of 89 was the year we were also putting, uh, we did a, I don't know, a 30 concert tour across Canada. And I went to the Bank of Montreal to see if I could get a loan because we were also, this was the first year producing the music on CD. And the bank said, well, I didn't really have a strong enough reliable income to get a loan. <laughs> so I just remembered that tour of 89 being just really, really tight and sitting on the road folding things and so on. And in fact, the Christmas of 89 after that tour was the last time I actually went back to the St. Mullerin's Market and busked because I just wanted to pay off that debt and get it. Well, so a mistake for them, but <laughs> a wise <laughs> investment for you because one of the unique things is you control and manage all of your recordings and rights, which in an industry that now is so challenging, it's something yeah. you came along at the right time and you were the timing was ideal. Like today, it's impossible to, to do what you did back then. Yes, I mean, it would be impossible now for me to start a career like I did back then. But just to finish that little... Uh, that part of the history, uh, the, the the stores I was starting to 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 distribute my recordings to, Sam the Record Man and various stores, and uh, so finally, uh, the record companies came to learn about these sales, and they they all came knocking at my door for distribution deals. For well, actually, it was a licensing, licensing deal um, because I had developed the capacity to finance my own recordings. And uh, so Warner's, where the re Warner Music Canada was really the only company that was prepared to recognize the fact that I ha had developed the capacity to finance my own recordings, finance and mount my own tours. I didn't actually need to borrow money from the bank of Warner, Polygram, MCA, whoever it was at the time. So it allowed for a very, very different deal and famously was known as the <coughs> McKennett deal. And it kind of broke the mold for the record Very companies. much broke yeah. the mold and, and, and really was the you know, one of the early independents in this country that was, you know, taking charge. And with that comes owning your masters and your publishing and all that. So I want to get to the roots of your advocacy, because when you're an actor or a performer, you're not necessarily doing it because you want to be famous or look at me. It's more your art and most people who prefer 
pr pursue those crafts are kind of shy and quiet and reserved. But this whole process of controlling your own rights and getting out there must have given you a lot of self-confidence to be able to, to speak your mind and explain what you want and for yourself. Yes, I mean, I wouldn't say in those, I was coming from an even an advocacy or activist, uh, I the closer and the more I got to look at the music industry, I realized it wasn't an industry that I felt that home much at home with, particularly with respect to business practices. And I remember once Warner Brothers Records came into the picture in 1992, and I'd go down to Los Angeles, and they uh, uh, initially they were very bemused by this artist wandering around without a manager, it, almost like parents, you know, or children wandering around without their parents. And each time I'd go down to L.A., they'd be saying, hey, we've got a meeting set up for another prospective manager. And, and I'd say, okay, you know, a bit like d blind dating until finally I, um, I met this one manager. And I can't remember, he, he, he managed, you know, some top-tier people. And I was explaining to him my career and what I was able to do for myself in Canada and in Europe. And, and, but I said, in the United States, I'm really needing assistance in touring and marketing. And he stopped, he sat back in his chair and he looked at me and he says, if you think I'm going to work for any artist, you've got another thing coming. <laughs> and I said to him, well, I'm sure your other artists would be interested to hear you say that. And I went back to Warner Brothers. I said, you know, I think I'm unmanageable uh, and I just don't think I can go in on any conventional deal. So we have to accept, we have to have to accept um, just working the best we can with myself, managing my career with my colleagues who were considerable. I still am working with a colleague in the UK who had worked with Warners there. Uh, I just spoke with him this morning. So I had some a good strong team, but it wasn't a conventional setup. But in terms of your advocacy work, uh, the first time I encountered that was when you saved the building uh, that you're now in, the Falstaff Center, okay, which used to yes. be a, mm -hmm, a, a mm -hmm. public school. When did you decide, well, I, I could, I mean, you've been nominated for Grammy Awards, you've won many Junos, you've got honorary degrees. Were you able to use that that power and recognize that, oh, I can influence things in my own community? How did that come about? Do you know, I've never, I've never really looked at myself in that light so much, maybe just a little bit recently, but, you know, <laughs> I'm a simple country girl. Uh, <laughs> I just felt that that was that the building, that stunning uh, schoolhouse that sitting in this neighborhood, uh, providing many functions, needed more of a consideration into the community. And I found that I simply had the wherewithal to step in and arrest it being purchased and perhaps demolished and, and something else. So so I, it, it wasn't that I had, I felt like I had, power, you know, I can see that, that I clearly having resources to step in and do something like that. But I think, you know, Craig, it comes from a deeper commitment to community and acknowledging that, that, uh, th that everybody plays a role, can play a role, and, and I think should play a role in keeping things together and, and respecting um, what I would like to feel is a more holistic approach to, to community living.
recognizing both sides of an argument as opposed to saying this must change? Is that sort of what you're talking about? Depends, you know, it depends. Uh, being enough of a business person, uh, I realize that I can't do or have everything that I want. There's other pragmatic considerations, and I've tried to train myself to be able to take those into to, into account. With that building, I just wanted to uh, make sure that there was enough time we facilitated uh, over an extended period of time community input as to what they wanted. And uh, and frankly, I was hoping and expecting something would come out it out of it where some other entity would buy it from me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 22 years later, that didn't happen. I'm still owning the building. But while I've been the custodian of this building, um, I've uh, and I use that word quite selectively, that I want, I feel it had been in purpose, to, in service to the community, and I've wanted to it to remain in service to the community. So that's why we have the, the composition of, of activities and tenants we have there. That's right. You've got the Multicultural Association as a tenant there. You've got the early years. Early on, yeah. Early on. Mm -hmm. You've got a theater company performing in there, yes, Fiona yes. Mangillo's Theater Company, mm -hmm. this summer, uh, here for now. Mm -hmm. And then you were the first person to step up and provide a venue for the first ever National Indigenous uh, People's Day last June, uh, a year ago, right? The, the venue for the Healing Circle. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, uh, that might be giving me a bit more credit than I deserve. I think we were responding to a situation last year where this huge kind of awakening after the Kamloops uh, uh, event and that I had been approached by a local indigenous person to s uh, to see if I would be open to establishing a medicine wheel garden on the property and welcome. And I said, uh, absolutely. You know, this this is what this place is for. It's to be uh, used in a service to, to the community. And you're very much part of this community. The pandemic and the months before that, or maybe years before that, have seen um, a real uh, polarization of the world and the community over a lot of issues, uh, whether it's political issues, uh, conflict in the world, uh, Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter. Um, so many things are, are coming to the fore. Do you think there's a connection between everything? And of course, social media, which has become increasingly toxic. And I know the technology and digital technology is a very important cause close to your heart. I'm wondering if there's a connection between all of these things that seem to be happening. All Are we at a turning point in history? Well, clearly this is not my training or education. You know, I'm just a very mm, keen and devoted citizen trying to figure it out along with everybody else. But um, I do feel that, uh, you know, there have, I think, quite central to the changes, the fundamental, and, and I would say the more of the disturbing changes that we've seen over the past 10, 15, even 20 years have been in some way connected to the unregulated internet and particularly social media. And I've, I'm gratified to see that there are governments around the world that are recognizing this and really trying to step up, even though the horse is so far down the road, to regulate the, the these companies. And um, 
you know, I've seen, we saw it certainly with the, the music industry was one of the first industries to be hit by it when there was uh, illegal downloading and piracy and all, all, all of that. But we've now seen so many other industries. And, and, and I think part of the, I mean, the, this, this part of this conversation could go on for quite some time. But, um, it's it's the it's almost like the hubris that's existed in in Silicon Valley and all the tentacles that went out from that just saying there's there's this can only be for good and i think that we've seen a lot of excellent really superb applications for technology i can think of quite a number uh, some lie in the medical field some lie you know in during this pandemic and so on but we've also seen the particularly in the social media area the it being horrifically weaponized and where one is really seeing that is in child and human development uh, where children can be using it to bully or there's you know the combination might be suicide serious addictions sexting human trafficking there's such such a long laundry list that in harm to human beings and particularly youth who uh, who have not understood the complex and powerful nature of this technology but of course, since the election, the U.S. election of 2016, um, and I was watching with great, uh, following along with great alarm, the evolution of Donald Trump, and uh, then to find, to learn that through, actually through a wonderful Channel 4 out of the U.K., they did a wonderful expose on the Cambridge Analytica Facebook connection and the Russian connection. And then the Russian connection with the, that was rehearsed with the Brexit campaign. So that brings us to our contemporary times, and 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 I've been quite keen to see, you know, w w what may be at play at a global on a global basis. So, for example, I've heard I, I heard this stunning program on the BBC World Service called "The Coming Storm" by Gabriel Gatehouse. Which is trying to delve into the 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 QAnon, the the January sixth insurrection at the Capitol, and so on, trying to find out where all these links are. Um, I read this stunning piece out of the Washington Post about the man who's often referred to as Putin's brain, called Alexander Dugan, who wrote a book in and published it in 1997 called The Foundations of Geopolitics, which referencing how inconvenient and uh, Ukraine is in the worldview that they're wanting to come forward with. I then came across and referenced in that Becoming Storm is another book called The Sovereign Individual, which has influenced many people in Silicon Valley, in particular Peter Thiel, who has been a Trump supporter. And one sees, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, and you get into the dark, the 4chan, the, all these dark places in the web that most people, if you're not really interested in the subject, you will not be aware. So I, I'm alarmed at how it has now weaponized our democracies, um, and it has, frankly, radicalized a large part of our population. A large part of the population who were vulnerable, either from you know uh, living in 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 impoverished situations, or because there have been a lot of changes, a lot of changes in the past couple of decades. So I feel that the internet. Uh, particularly some kinds of social media, has been very deliberate in the weaponizing uh, and radicalizing of a large part of the population, many of whom I don't, I believe that they don't even realize they've been radicalized. 
and that is uh, you know you take I will I you know I that's how I feel about what happened in Ottawa this past February in the convoy and so on. Again, many many people who with good with certain grievances, but you you can't you can't uh, encourage people to to uh, disobey the law. So it, it's a very very stunning time. You questioned whether or not the horse has already left the barn. The government of Canada is looking at Bill C-11 and Bill C-18, mm-hmm. the Broadcasting mm-hmm. and the Internet Act. Do you think Canada on its own, we're just one small piece of the global puzzle. How can we as one country even uh, hope to change these large corporate uh, internet giants? Well, I think these are situations that demand like, you know, it's like a weapons treaty. Uh, they need to be uh, dealt with, and I believe they're they're they're, or even like treaties to do with like copyright reform. Um, that there are, there's certainly Australia, uh, the UK, parts of Euro- in Europe has really been on this path. Canada again has been slow to stand up, uh, as it was with copyright reform. Um, uh, but uh, I think Canada is is joining. They're very aware of the the laws that have been developed and where they're working and maybe where they're not working as well and can make adjustments. But this Bill C-11 is extremely extremely important, and I feel that I'm 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 deeply disturbed by those who frame it as some kind of threat to free speech or something, because. This we- the, sadly, and this goes back to the radical the symptoms of radicalization, where freedom, the word freedom itself, can be uh, distorted. Uh, I mean, really, you know, you see people in Ukraine, and you see the the convoy in Ottawa, and you, you so how can you even breathe this word? There are different concepts of freedom. Even here in Stratford, we've got trucks driving up and down the street uh, during the protest saying freedom freedom well uh, yes and like i say i mean i want to be i want to be sure to take the time to get under the skin of what people's real grievances are but there's no room for for ill behavior and 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 disrespectful conduct and and i think you know we it is it, this is in our backyard in stratford when i was it was march um it was March when I was speaking with someone in town who shared with me that they had been part of a group locally. Uh, they first connected via Facebook, and when they went, uh, th- when they went over to their place, they saw a picture on the wall that was a picture of Donald Trump and Melania on a donkey with angel wings. This is hanging in some house here in Stratford. And I say, wow, this is this is where this is. So this is not just a subject elsewhere. We have we're all living in it now, and we all have to really set up and take notice and protect our democracy. I was going to say that we're not immune from the winds that are sweeping across the world. But one of the challenges that we have is that people don't have a reliable source of information anymore because our news media has been so hamstrung and there's nothing, there's a vacuum uh, uh, that which the social media companies are occupying and people who don't know don't know where to get their information from. We don't have anybody curating uh, balanced content. 
Well, but we do, does, but not to the same extent as we used to. Uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the internet companies were, have argued for so, so long that they're just platforms, they're not publishers, and therefore they couldn't be put in the same category as other <coughs> media companies. But clearly that's not true. And, and that's the biggest uh, horse that's got to be put back into the barn to the degree it's possible, meaning that information has to be it, it, it has to be a, uh, factually correct and the organizations who are disseminating this need to be held accountable there are various mechanisms press councils and so on that the reg the more traditional media have had to adhere to whereas though those internet companies have not had to do it but it does bring to mind you know when i was going back to alexander dugan putin's brain and looking and listening to some of his his uh, debates and speeches um he they, 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 he does not subscribe to democracy nor human rights, and they call themselves traditionalists, and they are they're egging for a different world order, and that through the I can't remember which which from which uh, book or from which podcast, but there is an effort of trying to break up Europe, Britain, and the U.S. I mean North America. And I think, for me at this time, I am putting a great deal of weight in that possibility that there are some global forces that are who have whose main point is to break up civilized society and democracy, and that they have weaponized the internet in order to create divisions and create controversies. And I think the sooner that the average person realized in some cases they've been weaponized in this, that, they, that, that, that this is something we have to get in charge of. One of the arguments I read was they, they, one of the arguments is that they're witnessing the moral decay of the West and they're trying to save humanity from itself is one of the arguments they have for for trying to break up the West and, and change democracy. But I want to ask you, because last November you were in Romania on Remembrance Day at the very last minute, where Canada has a, a, a NATO base, mm -hmm. and you're the honorary colonel of Royal Canadian Air Force. Mm -hmm. Did you ever imagine in November of last year, uh, was there any sort of nervousness about what Putin was doing? You're so close to Ukraine uh, there from Odessa and Kherson and places that yeah. uh, are being attacked. Did you ever imagine when you were there at that time that we would be in a situation now where we're now in the fourth or fifth month of uh, a war? No, you, you, I mean, nobody could imagine that. The, at the same time, you know, uh, sitting there at the edge of the Black Sea um, and you, you know, having a sense of distances, and, and I'm, a, you know, I was roughly aware, I'm not offered classified information by any stretch, but you are aware of what, why everybody's parked there it's to, to to keep the russians in check same thing as the sovereignty patrol in the north and so on and this gets into another subject that i feel quite powerfully uh, about and that is mm, you know the lack of understanding of civics which includes our canadian forces and i would say when i first became an honorary colonel in nine in 2006 i had so little appreciation of who they were, what they did, or, how, or, or did for Canadians, and so on. And I think this is part of, of what has to change and be strengthened as well, that, that the average citizen really looks, we have a fragile democracy. 
we do still hold on to some version of, of rule of law and human rights. This is really, really important to defend, but it is fragile. And, and in order to protect it, we have to understand what's involved in protecting it. Sometimes it means speaking up. Uh, I think of Francis Hogan, the whistleblower from Facebook. I think of you know today this extraordinary woman appearing before the 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 uh, uh, January sixth uh, in, in inquiry. Um, you you need people like that, but you also need um, you know the Canadian forces have uh, could do with a lot more support. I believe you're listening to the Stratford Slice with Craig Thompson. Check out our website, thestratfordslice.com, and be sure to subscribe. And now, back to the show. Well, they could do, and I read in the Globe Mail this morning that this NATO commitment to increase forces like tenfold over the next few years, the biggest challenge in Canada is recruitment. They're 10% or more behind young people don't want to join the forces, uh, especially with what's going on. So how, in your position, sort of as an honorary observer of what's going on, how do we how do we help the forces uh, change their image and recruit more people? Well, I think that civics needs to be taught in a more robust way at, at in, in the education system. It can't be an add-on. It can't be uh, a gratuitous thing. Again, you, we are going to rely upon citizens to protect our democracy, our human rights, and so on. And if, but if, if they have no idea of how it works, how governance works, but I believe that uh, very strongly th that there needs to be more mm, uh, awareness building and education back in the schools, but that was booted out in many schools. They didn't want anybody from the Canadian Forces there on Careers Day. Don't talk about the war. You Don't. Know. I, yeah, and yeah. I mean, I find it, <coughs> I find it disappointing um, because it it shows that people just still do not understand that the Canadian Forces do so much more for not only Canadians but the international community every single day. They not do not just combat roles but uh, peacekeeping, peacemaking, sovereignty patrol, search and rescue, disaster relief. There's like so many things. And the fact that they're, they've allowed over the past few decades or more to become invisible uh, uh, without really understanding what they're doing and what they need. They need all kinds of support. I'm stunned by what they do with so little. Because some of their helicopters can't even fly because they haven't got the parts to fix them. Yes, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they need they need budget, but they also need a population, a citizenry that understands what they're doing and why they're doing it, and they need the proper political support. They don't need a, it it to be a, a political football in Ottawa through between the various parties. There, there are people going out risking their lives every single day um, to to do to protect and defend things that are extremely important to Canadians. So I, I, so I feel that the ed it starts with education. I would like to see them back in on career days. Um, you know, maybe even consider uh, one year that is spent, maybe that instead of the fifth year of grade 12, you go in and do some kind of service. I know that there, there are countries that do that. I'd like to see a debate about that at, in the very least. Because... The, when you look at the skills and the knowledge and the character that was built 
uh, by those who joined the force is to fight the Second World War. You, it's it's stunning that that capability and that character and that resourcefulness, that tenacity, uh, is just missing now. Up until a few years ago, we went to Remembrance Day thinking, oh, war was something that happened in the past. It yeah. wasn't going to happen. Now we see it right on our on our TV screens every year. But I think part of the issue was after the Vietnam War, you know, the whole thing, make love, not war, mm -hmm, Militar mm -hmm. militarism became uh, passe. We, mm -hmm. we have to replace guns with uh, diplomacy. And the military became kind of... We don't want to talk about the military. They're kind of, oh, that's the way we used to do things. Now we're going to do things differently, making peace. But now we're coming full cycle, and we've left our military degrade to the point where we can't even protect our Arctic. Yeah, know? yeah. And, and I mean, I think it's important to make the distinction between the, the, the American military and the Canadian military. And I th and because we're so heavily influenced by films and TV and, and books and horrors and everything, you know, they are a very distinct uh, institution. The aggressor. They're they're <laughs> they're yeah. portrayed as the uh, macho aggressor of the world, the police yeah. force of the world, right? Yeah. But um, it's it's complex now. It's you know we are part of NATO. We are part of of different uh, uh, international organizations, and Canada should be playing a role. We shouldn't be doing a, taking a free ride, and that begins by reacquainting people with who they are, what they do. I mean. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm so amazed. I know that there's been some controversy, serious controversy, uh, uh, with respect to uh, culture in the in the Canadian forces, and I know that there's very very serious efforts to address that. But I do remind myself and others that they're not the only organization or institution, and they're just a very visible one. And they're 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 an organization that prides itself in finding that high bar, those high standards, and holding it. So we do expect, but we d must remind ourselves that they take in personnel from the general population. So some of the problems that you see in the Canadian forces are going on in the general population. So we have to deal with everywhere. How have the issues you've addressed about governance and and just issues that are affecting our society in general as we're influenced by the world. How has that come to pass in Stratford? I'm talking in particular about a particular industrial glass facility that uh, came our way during the pandemic. Yeah. Looking back on that, what do you think was learned uh, through that, through the Shinyi glass, uh, and how did it sort of come to be the way it was presented? Do you have any sort of thoughts on that? Well, it was... Um it was for me. It was a stunning uh, event uh, as a citizen. Um, stunning from the standpoint that the consequences of there was the project itself, which involved uh, the the environment, involved water, involved indigenous people. It involved, but setting the, the, the very mm, dubious nature of the plant itself and its suitable place in a, this location might be a great project in another location, but in this one it just seemed to be so out of whack. But for me, the more disturbing part was just the manner in which this project was able to advance as far as it was without the population knowing and and so when I first heard about it, it was after some other individuals were starting to get, and I thought, what the heck? What is what is? 
I realized that, you know, I was able to follow along um, uh, a, a, a process of putting something together that f uh, for which I'm still looking for explanations, to be honest. And there's still uh, information on that that is outstanding that I believe the citizens deserve to know. But I think the for, for, for me, what was the, the most alarming uh, piece of it all was the, the annexation of the land that took place in the January, where the council and the, the, the counties knew exactly what they were all aiming for, and they had presented they had presented the public as if, well, we're just gathering up land to have in a registry of land in case we need it sometime, when in actual fact, everyone knew that what was being planned was a glass factory. And they had presented this 35-page, what I call the brochure, for the public's consumption. And yet you have, uh, you know, people saying, the farmers in the neighborhood saying, this doesn't make any sense. And then a mere uh, few weeks later, uh, there was this almost 200-page report that goes to the ministry chapter and verse about MZOs and water and, and everything. And you say, this was just duplicitous. It was just duplicitous. And it was, it was conscious. But, and so many people knew. And I felt so badly for, for everybody, for the citizens. I felt badly for a lot of the, 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 the council members who were... It felt like they were stitched up. They couldn't breathe a word. You almost had to communicate with smoke signals. And that's mentally wearing because some people would be for the project, some people wouldn't. But nobody, nobody could talk about it. And, and even now, it's, 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 it should be another little good book sometime. <laughs> and geopolitics played a role in that, too, because the company in question uh, was from China. Not to say that that was the only reason people protested, but we were in the middle of the conflict the between China, the two Michaels. Yes, yes, yes. Trust factor and how the story was being portrayed. Well, I think this is this is the other thing that comes to my mind about this, you know, Canadians and this era and so on, and 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 just how naive, <laughs> you know, uh, and 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 a permutation of globalization that perhaps if done well, again, this isn't my <laughs> schooling, but just having trying to study it as a citizen, you worry that the formula of globalization has served very few hands and bodies, and a lot of other folks, you know, let's say in the manufacturing sector, have been thrown under the bus. And um, so there's a, it, it brought into focus quite a number of, 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 of points, um, and who is going to work there, and uh, but most certainly the international connection concerning China. I mean, lo look at what Putin has done to Ukraine. So you realize, you know, he's been lying all these years. Uh, there, we know that there that 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 there are big long chess games that go on, and we as a society and as citizens don't think in those terms. We think in our little democracies and we, we got a vote every four years and we we're pretty affluent but we're we're not we've never tasted the vulnerability of threat like that that really sharpens your mind and saying you know can i really believe that these hundred and thirty thousand troops that are surrounding ukraine are there just to you know practice it's it's so so th it 
So in the glass factory, there was this worry that it was just one more in international ingredient into that that we just cannot, must not lose control of the resources that allow us to be an independent nation and where we can supply our own needs uh, the, of, of, of very important things like PPE and so on. Um, so for me, I think, it r and for many, it just it just rattled people. There were just too many things that were too significant without a public conversation and a public discussion. And and I think at the end of the day, all when you added up all those things, it was just horrifically unnerving, and really completely lost the trust of the of many citizens with respect to the local council. And I know there's some good people in that council. We have the opportunity every four years to vote, and uh, sadly in the provincial election, the turnout was one of the lowest ever. can't remember the exact percentage, but I believe it was below 50% or somewhere in that area, and in municipal politics is usually lower. Mm. And we have an election coming up in, in October. Mm -hmm. How do you counter the apathy? Because people are living in a town like this just worry about their own backyard and not really the bigger picture? How do you get them out to to take action? Well, I think those who were paying attention to the glass factory and, and who were alarmed by that whole thing, I think they still are very mobilized. Um, uh, beyond that, I don't, I don't think there's a quick answer to that, Craig. I fear that uh, people and societies actually have to fall into some really crummy situations to liven folks up to say that that voting and being engaged as a citizen is is your basic duty uh, to democracy and um, we've had it pretty comfortable and pretty threat free for a very long time so I don't see any quick way about it again short of doing what we can in within the education system and and ensuring that as many of those dots are connected there for youth I know with my son, um, he's very he's he's very much taken up my um, interest in civics and history and and geography and and so on. So, but um, it's like that. <laughs> There's so many things shifting here in Stratford. Do you think we have the opportunity to be a model community? I do. I think we have an incredible opportunity right now. Um, at the same time, I think there's uh, an, uh, an opportunity things could be where, where things could really not be for the common good. I worry sometimes that this this lovely community will become like a little Monaco. That'll be uh, more for people who are well healed. Uh, and uh, I, I think that there are some really I think every single community has the moral duty to get their environmental footprint under control and as it pertains to climate change and be very, very serious about that and not tinkering around the edges. Um, but I also think that it's looking for that right composition 
of businesses and industries that are complementary. Um, you know, when I think, and, uh, and I think we've talked a bit before, there's so many incredible resources here in Stratford uh, f that have to do with uh, the arts and acting. And uh, But I've, I genuinely feel there should be much more here in terms of film or television production. It's so ripe for that. Uh, but also, we're sitting in a geographical area which is some of the best farmland on the continent. And we must not be paving over it. We have to find uh, those complementary uh, businesses um, that that respect that. And yet, making sure that there is a diversity. I, I mean, I personally feel, you know, the, it's good to have manufacturing. It's good to have a whole bunch of things. But I don't... F I've no, after the glass factory uh, exercise, I didn't. I didn't come away with the confidence that there's a good handle on that formula. But I think the the official plan is 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 coming up uh, for this city, and citizens have an opportunity to to partake in that to the degree that it it it, it influences things. But people. Mm, yeah, I, th I think there is a, a tremendous opportunity, but it must not turn in, in my, my hope, it, it doesn't become so financially uh, unreachable for average and people just to, just to have a life here. Stratford is a community for the people who live here, but it's also a brand. It's well known around the world, around North America. For the people who are listening who may not live here, but visit, visit here time to time, how can they help or how can they get involved? Is there a role for, for external forces to play? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm not sure what you, ha you may have in mind when you ask that question. I mean, you know, so for example, we all have choices. Um, and 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 as as we mentioned earlier, uh, I've had deep concerns about the unregulated internet. Uh, I would welcome people to go and stay in bed and breakfast before. I mean, I think there's there's regulation that's coming in about Airbnb type of thing. Um, so th there's those personal choices when you're coming in and and supporting local restaurants and and so on. But I think if there are people uh, who who are who may be listening to this and say, ah, okay, the composition of Stratford and it's at this kind of it can be at a crossroads, crossroads right yeah. now. Mm, there's there's definitely <coughs> opportunity for um, certainly within the arts. Uh, I, I can see, but I would like to see a, an overarching business arts. Our arts business plan, and I know one of the councillors, Jody Birdbrook, ha had spoken of this at a council meeting a over a year ago, and that helps bring all the elements together. I think of the Knox Church, where I've performed concerts, stunning, uh, stunning sanctuary. Well, just you know, today or tomorrow, it changes hands, and it's uh, it's it's you know, there's going to need to be a, a lot of community thought and work uh, in terms of keeping that that building uh, alive and relevant into this community and so it doesn't come down. Well, I guess what I was referring to was there's a lot of people who've come into Stratford either recently or, or visiting who are playing a role in the community. The new Tom Patterson Theater got right. a lot of money from outside. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of visible more than another community our size just because of our brand. So Stratford has that 
that stature that most small towns of 32, 35,000 wouldn't have. So what we do here affects more than just the people who live here. It affects the people who interact with Stratford in a whole myriad of ways. Yes, so yes, yes. You have to be yes. conscious, very careful of what that strategic plan is. Uh, going uh, absolutely, forward. absolutely. And I think that, you know, I'd also feel that there's opportunities for a city this size because when you get m so much bigger, it, sometimes things become so unwieldy. But to be a leader in terms of, um, of, of certain kinds of urban design and architecture that is completely uh, climate focused. I think there's incredible. I'd like to see a moratorium on the suburbs that are being, pay, you know, paving over the farmland. That's 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 the bad practice of 50, 60, 70 years ago. We know better than that now, and there's got to be some sense. So I feel that there's those kinds of opportunities, and uh, mixing the arts in with the the food uh, arts, and so. <laughs> so we started off talking about your music, Lorena. What? Obviously, performing arts and musical creativity has been challenging over the last couple of years, apart from a few concerts here and there and some online things. What is in your plans for the future? Because you still have a lot of people looking to see and hear you around the world. What, mm -hmm. uh, what are you trying to figure out? Well, we have, uh, I mean, it's been three years since we've toured. Um, so we have about eight dates set in October and November of this uh, this uh, year in in Hamilton, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Quebec City type of thing. Uh, we felt we wanted to do that close in, not a whole big tour, just in case the pandemic kind of, there's another wave. Um, we had hoped, we had hoped that we could go back into Europe in March of 23, and we're still holding the footprint of that tour. It's all, it's all ready to go, except we're trying to get insurance. Uh, so for example, the trucks and buses and equipment, just that line item alone is over 300,000 euros. For insurance. For in uh, no, 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 that's the cost. cost. So if we, if I get sick and can't tour, I forf I have to go forfeit. I have to forfeit that. So we're obliged to pay fifty percent on com on uh, to hold the equipment and fifty the final fifty percent just before we'd go out on tour. So I've paid that three hundred thousand dollar bill. Um, but you can't insure anything. But I yet. can't insure it against it. So right now we 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 were speaking with an insurance company from uh, London, England last week. And my agent had put me in touch with them and them with us because I, I just said, th this has to change. So anyway, we're, 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 we're looking to s hopefully, um, you know, it won't be without risk. Um, and that's not just you. That's all performers out there. Right oh, now. for sure. Like uh, what uh, happened to Justin Bieber. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had the facial paralysis. Yeah, episode, yeah. And he had to cancel yeah. all of his. But that would be covered by insurance. It it's just COVID is not. Oh, it's COVID only. COVID okay. is not. And so the insurance companies are trying to, they've been dealing with the TV and, and theater, but it seems one of the last uh, zones of the arts is the touring world. And if you can imagine, you know, in my situation, we're doing the likes of Massey Hall or Place des Arts, you're sitting. Indoor. Indoor, indoor, indoor venues. Yeah. And you're mm. in, in front of 2,000, 2,500 people, you know, night after night. Uh, 
you know, even if I ask everybody to come in with their masks on, I have to sing with my mask off. <laughs> and you have to forget all the stresses of what's been going on <laughs> during the day and then be a different person on stage. Well, it's not just that, you know, after the after the performance, we all go into tour buses together. It, well, yes. I mean, there's there would be like uh, three buses, one for the crew and and one for the band and one for my, you know, team. Uh, team. And so it can be like an incubator. And and so y there's like we this past week we're just going through all these details. So um and we have another uh hopefully the second chapter of a European tour um earmarked for next summer. Um, we're talking with our agent about going into the uh, northeast of the United States in the fall. Um, so we're trying to see how we can proceed forward. Um, but it is very, it's very, very tricky. It's very, very tricky, uh, largely now because of the COVID consideration. So in terms of new material, are you using any of the things that have gone on the last few years to try to tell new stories through music? What do you, what, <laughs> have you changed direction it, at it, all? It's, or it's funny you should ask that because I was saying to myself this morning, I think, well, God, you know, with everything going on, this should be a very uh, fertile time to be coming up with, you know, although I've always, you know, primarily drawn upon the, the history of the Celts, and but I also try to bring those certain historical things into a contemporary re relevance. There are parallels with the history yeah. of what's going on today. So. <laughs> but, um, no, uh, unfortunately, there hasn't been too much time to to create. I I need to pull myself away from my managerial role and all the the mortal things that keep my feet on the ground, and and you know put myself on a train in I don't know Istanbul or something. Yeah, a retreat for <laughs> a few weeks or yeah. right, but uh, yeah. But you know, uh, you know, if this is I've been thinking even like in 2019 we just released lost souls and the title really captured kind of this my own feeling the, of this growing storm we had, didn't have the coven we didn't have ukraine but i just thought you know we're not where we need to be and and i thought um i i'm gonna put things on pause for a while i want to s i needed to spend some time with my family to get things aligned for my son's education um, but I wanted to recalibrate and, and 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 be part of the community because that's one of the other downsides of of touring and and being you lose touch yeah. you lose yeah. touch and I and I think the other the other thing why I've chosen to live in this community stay connected is that I lived here under the radar long before I became a well-known person and it allows me as normal a lifestyle as I can possibly imagine. So, um, but I, I uh, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see what the next year or so brings. Great, well, <laughs> thanks for sharing your time with us and it was great to well, thank have you. this chat with you, Lorena. Great chatting thanks. with you, Craig. You've been listening to The Stratford Slice with Craig Thompson. For more episodes, check out our website, thestratfordslice.com and be sure to subscribe. The Stratford Slice is produced by Ballinran Entertainment, Southwestern Ontario's number one digital media studio. If you have a great story to tell and want to be on the podcast, please reach out to us through our website, thestratfordslice.com. <laughs>